Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Wonderful. Well, as I mentioned before, we are heading into this new Lenten series called On the Move. And quite simply, we're looking at movements of Christ towards the cross and seeing how they illustrate and demonstrate the way God wants to move in our life. But I wonder as we think about this idea of moving house, how, how often have you moved, moved house in your life? Once, twice, seven times, twelve times? It's one of those things that is a shared human experience for most of us in some way either as kids or as adults, moving house, packing up everything you have and shifting somewhere else. Some people are crazy enough to just shift around the corner. Why would you do that? It's a lot of work. If I'm honest, I don't like moving house. I just don't like it. I don't know if it's being confronted with the reality of how much junk you've got and sorting it all out. What do you keep? What do you get rid of? Moving it. If you're new here, you might not know that uh, as, uh, as a pastor, I live in a house called the Mance. I don't actually know why it's called a Mance. I should look that up one day. But a Mance is the house that the church owns that the pastor gets to live in. It's a hard part of helping the pastor to, to minister to the local community is giving them somewhere to live in that local community. And so it's a great house. We love it. And I hate moving. So I've got extra motivation, I think to love you as a church really well, so you don't send me somewhere else. What do you reckon? Is that a good deal? If you don't make me move, I don't want to, and I, I'll, you know, like, let's do that. All right. So I'll stick around as long as I can, partly so I don't have to move. But the thing is about moving house is that we learn a bit about ourselves, I think. When you're moving house, the way we learn about, so the, sort of the, between the way we go about packing and the way that we handle the pressure of it all, it shows priorities and it shows our heart in many ways. And as we begin this season of Lent, this six weeks leading up to Easter, many of the different churches, many of the church traditions use this time to journey through one of the Gospels. They just pick out some key elements of Jesus' journey to the cross. And this year, I've called the series, or this series of Lent, On the Move. Because Jesus is always on the move in the Gospels. Perhaps most in Mark's Gospel, but in all of them. Jesus never stays anywhere. Jesus, as far as we can tell, never owned a house. He was an itinerant rabbi, teacher, and preacher who was proclaiming a new socio-political vision of a kingdom of God under God's reign, unlike anything the world had ever seen. That was Jesus' life and ministry for the first century. And so he never stayed anywhere for very long. And when he did stay somewhere, he always did so in someone's house. But as we look 
at Jesus' movements, the ones that are recorded in the Gospels. We, I think we can learn some things about God's, about Jesus' heart for people, Jesus' heart for the world, and therefore God's heart for us and God's heart for our world. And so today we're going to look at the first movement of Jesus' public ministry as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And as we do that, I want to cast your mind back. And this one's going to get a little bit real for you, but that's one of our core values, authentic community. I'm not going to ask you to respond to it, but I've got a question for you. What is, cast your mind back, don't have to say anything, you can tell me after if you really need to, what's the most convincing lie you have ever told in your life? Or, what's the most convincing lie that you were, you were tricked by in your life? That comes to mind. What comes to mind for you when it comes to a lie? wonder what it could be. For me, one of the most convincing lies I believe I ever told, but I just never really checked, to be honest, but it felt convincing to me, and it seemed to be true, was I went to going to school, I was probably in year eight, I think, and there was a bit of a conflict at the, the bus station that I went to to, to, um, to go to school every day, caught two buses to get to school, and, and um, there was a conflict there one day, but, and I was sort of involved in it, in um, which is lost to time in many ways. But the story that I told about how I was involved in that was that I was this strong, tough, eight-year-eight uh, eight kid that defended the honor of some other. I don't even remember the exact story, but I span this tale of my involvement in this story of how I defended some young kid and, and protected them until police came and, and it was whatever, because none of my class were there, so they didn't know any different. And what I believe made the lie so compelling, don't even ask, I guess I wanted to, be, to look good in front of my peers. We've never done that, have we? Um, I guess what made the lie so compelling was not the way that I told it. And it's not even the fact that I did tell it, but the, what made the lie so compelling is because it was partly true. There was a fight at the, at the bus interchange. I was involved in some way. And so all it meant was I got to twist a few little details, and then I got to be the hero of the story. And the fact that it was grounded in truth made the lie that much more compelling. So I want you to just hold that idea, that sometimes the most compelling lies that we experience in our life or that we tell are the ones that we know are partly true. So can you hold that idea for me? Think of your lie, and let's jump into the text. We're headed to, to Luke to four. So if you're, if you're new to church or you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there's four pieces of writing in the New Testament that outline Jesus' life and ministry. We call them the Gospels, and it's the first four books of the New Testament. And the Gospel of Luke, which is Luke and Acts, was, Luke was a doctor, and he knew many of the people that journeyed with Jesus, and he set about writing, as he writes in the beginning of Luke, an orderly account of Jesus' life and ministry, as he was able to understand it. And he spoke with and did so within the life of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so that's why we believe, you know, the gospel accounts that we have here were written within the time of people that were alive to affirm them. And so that's why we look at these and we, we understand and believe them to be true. So to give you some context, Jesus was just baptized by John the baptizer, turned out to be his cousin. 
in the Jordan River. And something miraculous happened in that moment. He's baptized, and as he comes out of the water, this is his first sort of public appearance, a, something like a dove, which we, Luke identifies as the Holy Spirit, comes down and anoints Jesus in that moment. And heavens open, and there's a voice that you can hear, and it says, this is my son, and in him I am well pleased. The voice of God speaks over Jesus as his son and declares him as his son. And as Jesus begins his ministry, this powerful truth is declared over his life, over him, over his identity, declaring who he really is and his standing before God. This is my son, that's who he is. And in him I am well pleased that he is his standard. Sinless, perfect, unblemished. In him I am well pleased. And with that truth resonating in his ears, scriptures tell us, as we begin in verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, by the enemy, by the opposer of God in the world. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. And the, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all that their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone that I want to. Notice Jesus doesn't disagree with Satan's statement on this. Just a little detail, we'll get to that. He says, I can give this to anyone that I want. If you worship me, says Satan to Jesus, I, it will all be yours. All you've got to do is worship me. And Jesus' response in verse 8, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And the passage continues, the devil led him then, part three of the temptation, to Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he says, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, quotes the devil from, from Psalm 95, I think. Yeah. He will command His angels concerning you, to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Look at that, the devil quoting Scripture. And Jesus responds to this. He says, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Sorry, Satan, try again next time. Thank God for that, hey? What's going on in this text? What do we see happening? We see the enemy, the devil, Satanus, as it's described in Scripture. This, this being, this entity which is opposed to the will of God in the world, that somehow has sovereignty over the earth in its form, because of the pervasiveness of sin, we can get to that later, because of the fall, 
this enemy, this Satan, is tempting Jesus. Now, why, why, why is this significant? Why is it significant? Well, I want to just bring out a couple of things and help us understand this, and then I want to draw out something really, really helpful for us. First thing I wanted to look at was fasting. Jesus is fasting in this moment. For 40 days, he goes without food and without water. There's only two other places in Scripture that we read that this happens. It happens to Moses as he receives the Ten Commandments, and it happens to Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament, as he receives the anointing of the Spirit as he's running away from Queen Jezebel. And he's, as he, after, he, after Elijah is um, fasting, he sees the presence of God. And the same is true of Moses. What we've got in these two moments is the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. Two things that symbolize what the people of God had to go through previously. Fasting as a way of connecting with God through the law and as a way of connecting with God through the prophets. And so what we see here is Jesus fasting, the Son of God. Does He need to connect to God like everyone else? Well, I think we learn in this moment Jesus fasted because He wanted to dis- because it, wanted, it needed to be significant that Jesus wasn't better than anyone else. Jesus was human. Jesus was God in a, in a body, fully human, made of flesh. And so in His connection to God, it was significant that He undergo the same thing that the two significant characters of the Old Testament underwent in their connection with God. Does that make sense? So why, why was Jesus fasting? That's why he was fasting. And that's why it was 40 days. But then we get to the temptations that the devil gave, extended towards Jesus. And these are the temptations, verse 3. If you really are the Son of God, provide food for yourself. If you really are the Son of God, provide food for yourself. And Jesus responds, He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 3. And in in that quote, Moses is reminding Israel that the wilderness that they, that in the wilderness, as they work towards the promised land, the wilderness they were relying on God's commands, not their own capacity. So in that moment of temptation, Jesus reminds Satan that we don't live by our own capacity, we live by that which we are given by God. Secondly, we read verses 5 to 8, the second temptation. All authority is mine, says the devil, undisputed by Jesus. I can give it to anyone. All you've got to do is worship me. You can be the Lord of everything, says the devil. You don't need the cross. You don't need all of the ministry and everything that's going to come, come, all the suffering. You don't need any of that. Just worship me, and I'll give you all the. I'll give you all the authority. I'll give you all of the good stuff without the bad. And in response, Jesus quotes Moses again. And in in that moment, Moses is reminding Israel not to take credit for 
them getting into the promised land. That it wasn't up to them that they got where they needed to go. That instead, it was about God. And so in a sense, Jesus' response to the devil is, you see all this kingdom of the world and my ministry and mission is not about me and my glory. It's about God and His glory. And then thirdly, the devil again tempts Jesus. He says, if you really are, notice the challenge to his identity, if you really are the Son of God, jump off this building, kill yourself, and see what happens next. Because if the Scriptures are really true, says the devil, then you will not be able to kill yourself in, the, in this moment. Instead, you will be saved by the angels. That is, if the Scriptures are really true, Jesus, so why don't you give it a crack and see what happens? But there's something else going on here. Jesus responds and says, I'm not, don't, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus' response is also a, a response of timing. Because it's about, his, his response is, God has a plan. And His plan doesn't involve me jumping off a building and proving that I am the Son of God and becoming famous. Because what do you reckon would happen? In the corner, on, the, on, on the corner of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of people around on the edge of the marketplace, what do you reckon would happen if Jesus jumped off a building and was miraculously saved by angels? Do you reckon anyone would notice? Do you reckon anyone would notice? No one would notice. You don't think anyone would notice. Jesus flying. This is not a Marvel film. This is the first century. He would not strike his foot upon a stone. If scriptures are true and we believe they are, that's what would happen. Of course people would notice. He would become famous. He would be heralded as the Messiah everyone was waiting for, wouldn't he? I'm sure he would because no one's done that so far. Right? He would be able to circumvent everything and be the Messiah that Jerusalem was waiting for. But Jesus' response is no. That might provide the Messiah everyone was waiting for, but it's not the Messiah they need. So I need to go to the cross and I'm, gonna be, I'm not going to be famous. I'm going to be shamed. And that's how it must happen. And I've got to believe, essentially, says Jesus, that if there was any other way, to do it, then it would happen that way. So I cannot put God to the test. There's, one, there's something in this that I wanted to parallel, and you're going to talk about it in your life groups anyway. But if you notice the similarity, if you're familiar with it, with the narrative in the Garden of Eden. Has anyone picked up on that? In the Garden of Eden, we've got Adam and Eve, hanging out in the Garden of Eden. They can eat whatever they like. This is Genesis chapter 3, the Josh Shearer translation. Um, They're in the Garden of Eden. They can eat whatever they like except for the one tree in the middle of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And And Satan comes to them in the form of a serpent, tempts them. And what does he say? Did God really say that you couldn't eat from the tree in the garden? Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And his response is, in verse 4, after Eve says, well, yeah, no, we're not really allowed to. Her response is, his response is, surely you won't certainly die. 
That's not really what will happen. Is that what God really said? Instead, he says, no, God wants, doesn't want you to know something. God is hiding something from you. What's really true is that when you eat this, you will be like God. You will have the knowledge of good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable, she took it and she ate it. Did God really say, you won't surely die? You can be like God. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? The devil says to Jesus, did God really say you're the son of God? You don't really need to die, you could gain it another way. You can be like God. So there's three, three things in this narrative I want us to focus on. The first one is as we journey towards the cross with Jesus, I need us to realize that Jesus didn't come to the earth for a tourist view. Jesus didn't come to just see what everything was like and then give his life. Jesus came and experienced the brokenness of life and gave his life for us. Jesus shared in the human experience through temptation. And what that tells us is because Jesus experienced it, Jesus can serve as our guide through it. That Jesus is the one who knows the way through this temptation. Because let's not miss it, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness parallels to the temptation that humanity first faced when it encountered an opposing opinion to God in the world. And what did we do? We failed. But Jesus succeeded against the enemy where Adam and Eve failed and brought brokenness into the world. And I believe that when it comes to us, when we navigate temptations of the world, and let me be real to you that the enemy is very much there, and I'll explain that in a minute, I believe that when we encounter temptations in the world, the only one that can get us through them in any sort of meaningful way is one that has already navigated them. He knows the way through. So Jesus' gift to us in journeying to the cross is that he didn't come as a tourist. He came to experience the whole deal. He took the VIP tour and it gives us what we need to navigate, the brokenness of life. But this, and so that's the first thing. The second thing, this narrative, I think we can identify the nature of temptation in our life. And the reality is that you and I, we're not going to be tempted the same way that Jesus was. Very few of us are going to be offered and tempted in the same way. But I think what we do when we look at this narrative is we get an insight into, the, into Satan's strategy for how he tempts you and I in this life. Now, you might not even believe in Satan, that's fine. But you can't tell me that you don't believe you're tempted to do, the things, do some things that aren't good for you. Anyone ever had of those? Can you sit and resist the chocolate every time? Can you sit and resist... I don't know, I can give you a thousand examples, but we'll keep going. And we look, when we look closely at this, 
And I draw this from a book called uh, um, Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. He writes it this way. He says, the same strategy we read in this scripture is deceptive ideas playing into disordered desires normalized in a sinful world. Deceptive ideas playing into disordered desires normalized in a sinful world. And now we get back to our convincing lies. You've still got the one that you thought you got away with in your mind, right? The thing about temptations of the enemy for us as followers of Jesus and in life in general is that the most effective lives that we, lies that we are going to believe are the ones that are mostly true. Or that are not the whole truth, but a side narrative of it. What we discover is that you and I, we are naturally trusting people. Did you know that? That we are naturally trusting. I don't care if you think you're cynical or not. So a bunch of studies were done from the most, that basically analyzing the behavior of the most cynical people, the most untrusting people in the world, police officers, CIA agents, people like that, designed to critique others. And what they discovered, Dr. Timothy Levine in his thesis discovered that we as human beings are terrible at detecting lies. We just suck at it. We have this thing that he calls TDT, truth default theory. No matter how cynical you think you are, your default is truth. You will want to trust someone before you mistrust them on the front end of things. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Talking to Strangers, summarized it like this. He said, we do not behave, in other words, like sober-minded scientists in our life, slowly gathering evidence of the truth or false or falsity of something, before reaching a conclusion, we do the exact opposite. We start by believing, in, and we only stop believing when our doubts or misgivings rise to a point where we can no longer explain them away. Friends, we default to trust. And so, when we look at our life, and we look at that block, I'm going to keep the block of chocolate analogy. The block of chocolate, you won't surely get fat from that, not this time, maybe next time or the fifth block, but you won't surely get fat from that, will you? Your, diet, your blood sugar level won't raise too much, so it won't be that big an issue with your diabetes, will it? And how many of us are going to get convinced by that? We might. But the thing is that deception alone, these half ideas that we might encounter in our life, alone are not the danger. Because in the face of truth, deception actually fails. Except that you and I, Deception actually has somewhere to land. And it lands with our disordered desires. The New Testament writers call this the flesh. And the oversimplification of it is that our basic animalistic drives and desires, the stuff that we want. Does anyone want stuff in life that they don't have? No? Yes? No? Some of you? Things like happiness, pleasure, satisfaction gratification, purpose, meaning, significance, power, glory. All of those things are animalistic drives. With And let's pick on happiness then. We all want to be happy and prosper in life, don't we? You and I, I, I want to, and so at least I'll use me as a case study if nothing else, but I know you do. Someone even quote this passage over your life. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. 
Anyone read that in a, in a card lately? Anyone got, got it on a plaque on their wall or something? It's a quote from Jeremiah 29.11. A quote of God over the Israel nation. So let's play this one out then. If scriptures say you deserve to be happy, let's play it out. You deserve to be happy. That promotion's going to make you happy. The only person standing in your way, really, is that colleague that keeps doing better than you. But what if that key document that they're waiting on doesn't make it to them this time? What if it got dropped in the hallway? What if the email didn't end properly? Just an innocent mistake. But that mistake will make them look terrible, and then you'll get ahead a little bit. Now, all of that is wrong. All of that is deceitful. True? But when it's placed before us as the avenue to our happiness, suddenly the lines start to become blurry and deception starts creeping in. Or what about, hey, you deserve to be happy. You married folks in the room. I'm going to pick on you because I'm married too. You married folks, you all deserve to be happy, all of you. You agree? This is hyperbole, don't take this. But let's face it, you haven't been happy in a while. Not in your marriage, not really, not in years. Your wife, your partner just isn't isn't the right fit for you anymore. It's okay, it happens. See, you married way too young anyway, you didn't know any different. You didn't live together beforehand and so how were you to know? You weren't really that self-aware. And this marriage just isn't for you. It isn't what you hoped it would be and that's okay. But if you were to get divorced, I'm sure there's someone out there that's a better fit for you. No, that person will make you happy when you find them. But what's interesting about that is all the data is super clear. Divorce is the most destructive part of our society as far as relational connection goes. Incredibly so. I'm from a divorced home, and so I can tell you how real that is. That long-term fidelity, commitment, and intimacy leads to much more happiness than anything else we might otherwise entertain. Yet how is it that more than half of our world married couples are getting divorced now? How did that happen? It's because our fleshly nature would much rather pursue sexual gratification and short-term heady romantic flings and the fantasy of a feel-good life. Half-truths, you need to be happy, grounded in disordered desires. You're right, I want to be happy. And this fleshly stuff, and I can be happy if I just pursue sexual gratification. We sin, friends, because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. So that's the two parts of it. The third part is that it's, it's deceptive ideas grounded in disordered desires normalized in a sinful world. Because surely though, when these deceptions, even though they're affirmed by what we want, when they hit reality, they come unstuck, right? We all know that divorce is a bad thing, don't we? And so when it hits our culture that says divorce is a bad thing, then it just will get, we'll snap out of it, won't we? But hang on a second. What does our culture say about divorce? It's fine. Don't worry about it. You'll find someone else to make you happy. 
Now, I'm not, I don't want to pick on divorce today, but I'm just, it's the illustration, I think, that helps us best understand this. That our desires would be called, into a, would be called to account if the world around us wasn't broken too. It would, we would get called to account if there was an agreed standard of truth to which we could all But the problem is that when everyone around you is living by the same paradigm of deceptive ideas fed into disordered desires, then none of us can hold anyone else to account. None of us have a standard. There's nothing to hold on to. And before you know it, adoption, stabbing, divorce, manipulation in the workplace become key themes on Netflix that you watch every single day. Every single day, the brokenness of the world has become entertainment for us. And we wonder why our young people are struggling to figure out how to live a meaningful life in the world. Because their deceptive ideas are being fed into their disordered desires and affirmed in a sinful and broken world. An echo chamber. So friends, we live in a culture that reflects back the disordered desires of our hearts. So where does that leave us then? If this is the strategy of the enemy, and I think you follow the narrative thought of just how much of a struggle this is, where does it leave us? Well, it leaves us with the truth of verse 13, and the truth of the cross, that where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Adam failed the temptations that led to the brokenness of the world, and we stand in his stead. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam fell to the temptation, Jesus resisted the temptation, and then when the devil visited him again, He died and was raised to life. From Adam's disobedience, we found death. From Jesus' obedience, we find life. And so for us, friends, face the lies and brokenness of our world, to stand in the face of the deception that so easily entangles us, that as we journey as followers of Jesus, we're invited to look at our journey as we see these temptations in our life, And you already know what they are. I don't even need to tell you. You know, as we've been talking, you know the temptations that are there. We stand by looking to Jesus. We stand by holding close the rhythms of what it means to follow Jesus. Have you noticed that in the last over the last six weeks we've been talking about a series called Refresh? And in that series were the practices that help us refresh our soul. And so to resist the lies of the enemy, to resist the temptation, we lean on things like Scripture, the truth of God. We lean on things like community, the gathering of God. We lean on things like worship, 
taking a moment to assign ultimate value to God over everything else. And we live a life submitted to God's purposes above all else. But above everything, we need to be reminded this morning, church, that we need Christ above everything else. Because Christ is the map. Christ is the one that's been there before and knows the way through. I invite the band to come back up. And as I do, I declare this, this word, we're reminded in John's Gospel, chapter 8. It says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Friends, Jesus came, and He gave His life on a cross. He was raised to life, not so that you could be happy. You don't even know what it, makes, what it takes to be happy. He came not so that you could be happy. He came so you could be free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Free and free from shame free from the brokenness of this life. So what lies have you been believing in your life? Lies about what makes you happy? Lies about what the future should hold for you? Lies about what God really wants for your life? Friends, the invitation this morning is to see things the way they are. That our the deceptive ideas fed into our disordered desires in a broken and sinful world are a recipe for disaster. And so when we look to Christ, we discover the hope and the freedom that we truly need. So let's pray, church. Loving God, as Jesus moved into the desert, He overcame the devil by knowing who he was and whose he was. And trusting that the plans God had for him were the best possible outcome. And as followers of Jesus, Lord, as we move towards the cross with you, may we, may we be reminded this morning that we overcome the lies in our life, the things that want to distract us from your best for us by knowing who we are in Jesus and trusting God's plan for our life grounded in your truth, that we are sons and daughters of the living God, loved, forgiven, and set free by the cross. And so the invitation is to trust you once again. And Lord, if there's anyone here that has never put their trust in you, the invitation is there. And if that's you this morning, you might recognize exactly what I've been talking about in, in your own life. And I believe you're here today as no accident. You're discontented with the lies and you want to move towards the truth. And God has something more for you. Found in trusting Him with your life. And trusting the gift of Jesus' death on the cross for you. So that gift is yours to be received today through faith. And if that's your story, 
you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to accept that today, know that God's love meets you where you are. So loving God, help us to receive your grace in our life. Help us to understand the difference between deceptive ideas and your truth so that we might find the life that you have in store for us now and all the days of our life. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Mel. Amen. Thank you, Josh.